This week's episode of the Velo News Podcast, sponsored by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on your performance of your sleep on how recovered your body is and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Every day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based off of your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. Is it going to be a big day? Is it going to be a chill day? The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you targeted exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activities, so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate, throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. You may have read or listened to some of our podcasts with Kate Courtney talking about how Whoop has helped her with her performance goals. Basically, it tracks your sleep, your heart rate, all these other factors, wraps it all together and tells you if you can have a big day, if your body's recovered and you're ready to take on, you know, some five-hour monster ride, or if you need to chill. Some days, hey, the motivation is there, but your body actually needs an extra day of rest, and Whoop is the tool that can tell you that. Okay, right now we have a great deal for listeners of the podcast. If you use the code VELONEWS, all caps, VELONEWS, at checkout, go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P. Again, code VELONEWS at checkout. You get 15% off so you can sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Thanks so much to Whoop for sponsoring the podcast. All right, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from an off-site location that is not in Boulder County. I am up here in Crested Butte, Colorado for the next two weeks on a little working vacation. Working hard, but also riding my bike. Um, uh, sitting in a house at about 9,000 feet and um, it's hard to walk up stairs, let alone go ride your mountain bike on the trail. But hey, no complaints for me. It's awesome up here. I recommend everyone, if you have a chance to come check out Crested Butte and go ride your bike on the trail sometime. Hey, we have a great show for you this week on the Vell News Podcast. My reporting and conversations around race and racism in cycling continues this week. And I have, I wouldn't call this an interview. It's more of a conversation with the five board members of the Major Taylor Iron Riders Cycling Club, which is based in New York City. Now, I used to live in New York City and ride my bike out there and race and participate in the CRCA and the Central Park races. And when I was riding in New York City, I'd always see riders rocking the kit of Major Taylor Iron Riders. It was a very, it was an unmistakable kit. And you'd see these guys and gals riding in these groups way out on Long Island, way up north in White Plains area. And uh, the kit was very identifiable, but so was the club because this club was predominantly African-American, Latino, um, riders from the West Indies. There were there are white club members for sure, but it was a very culturally and ethnically diverse club and definitely the most ethnically diverse club in the city. And I got to know some members of the club a few years later when I wrote a few stories about Joshua Hartman. Um, I wrote a piece on him for the Wall Street Journal and then a big feature on him for Velenews. Joshua was is a uh, he comes from East New York, one of the most disadvantaged neighborhood in New York City. Joshua came up racing, got into bikes when he was uh, twelve. 13 had a terrible crash during uh, one of the rounds of the Red Hook Criterium, was hospitalized for weeks, had to have reconstructive surgery to his face, thought he was never going to ride again. This all happened when he was 15. 
Um, he recovered from his injuries, got on a bike, kept racing track. Now he is in the development program uh, for the Olympics. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And Joshua's story uh, really relied on Major Taylor Iron Riders for helping provide him with a bicycle, helping provide him with the basic cycling guidance that all new cyclists need when they first come into the sport. They really shepherded him along. And I think um, his career would not have been possible if it weren't for Major Taylor Iron Riders. Anyway, you know, when um, we had the tragedies and the murders around Ahmed Robbery and uh, George Floyd and the other, you know, national conversation about race. I, I knew I wanted to reach out to Major Taylor Iron Riders because they have been so successful in uh, bringing African Americans and Latinos into cycling. And I wanted to ask um, the riders about what, not necessarily their secret successes, but, you know, how the club works and, um, and how they foster this community in this sport that is so white, seemingly white everywhere, everywhere else you go. And I wanted to ask them about, you know, the instances of racism, and racial bias that they have felt on a bike as well. And I really uh, appreciate their responses. They, were, they opened up. They have some great perspective on cycling. And so the five board members I spoke to are Chris Hasfall, Natasha Merle, Daryl Tucker, Patrick Merozier and Derricka Hendon Barnes. Derricka is the club president, and the other four are board members. So let's get to it. My conversation with the Major Taylor Iron Riders Club. There's so many different places we can go with this, but I will say, in terms of what the Iron Riders are doing, I don't think it's anything different than what we have done in the past. And when there's been uh, turbulent times in, in society and in the world, you know, we lean on each other. Cycling is a, it's a common love sport. You know, so we all love the sport tremendously. And it's where we find our place of release. It's where we go to get away from, whether it be stress at work, at home, you know, what's happening in the world. This is our place where we can, we can support each other and, and let go. So it's a very sacred place for me in particular, but I think the club members themselves share it as well. Like, this is our place of sanctity. This is our sacred place, time together, that we all share something that we love doing. And with everything that's happening in our community, it is, I don't think I know for certain, that it's bringing us closer together. You know, there's a lot more, a tighter knit and a bond between us. We're all looking out for each other collectively. And I know as sitting president now, I, I've definitely sent that message out to, the, to our members. You know, when you guys are out there riding now, you know, I need you guys to be more vigilant about your awareness of what's happening around, you know, the, the drivers that are out there, the neighborhoods that you guys are going through. And just that awareness is something that I don't think other cyclists, white cyclists, have to be concerned about. And, you know, it's, it's in our the political climate that we have now. We've always had to be on guard as African-Americans. But now it's a heightened sense of that we feel like we have to definitely watch our backs. And I know I message out to my members, watch each other's back. And if you see somebody that's and that needs help, you know, step in and help them because they may not be able to help themselves. But that's the message that I'm sending out to my members. And I do feel pretty confident that it's resonating with them as all this, these things that are happening around us are brought into on the news. You know, it's starting to be a little bit more highlighted. So it's a double-edged sword, whether or not we feel more support from other people or it's a double-edged sword they feel more entitled to to come at us. As a, you know, a lot of white riders look at cycling as a safe space and they, they hear um, stories of racism or racial bias in the cycling space. And I think they kind of shrug them off and say, oh, well, that doesn't really happen. And I wanted to pose that to you. I mean, have, have you 
felt um, racism or racial bias in the cycling space as cyclists, as African-Americans who ride bikes? And what has it looked like? Yeah, this is Natasha and I can take it and then um, I can pass it on to others as well. Kind of a few of us have stories about this. I mean, I, I think in your original question, Fred, that you posed to us, you said whether it was explicit or perhaps implicit bias in the racism that we um, kind of have to overcome and endure in the cycling community. And I would definitely say it's both. Um, obviously, there's no question, there's no doubt that there's a complete lack of diversity um, in many clubs, um, including in New York City clubs, uh, cycling clubs, that there's a lack of diversity. Um, and, you know, I guess I can say personally, when I started riding, um, the cyclist, you know, this, this can be an intimidating sport. And a lot of times how you get to become a cyclist or how you get to take that step is somebody lending a hand, willing to help you, willing to give some advice, willing to allow you just to ride with them. Um, and I can say, you know, when I would try to reach out to cyclists um, of different races, white cyclists, you know, that there was not a welcoming uh, vibe. There was not, they weren't welcoming. I would say the clubs were not welcoming. Um, and it's not that anybody said anything to me, but you can just tell that there was a knit um, and that there was a close knit and there was a resistance to allowing anybody else in that club or in that, that circle. Whereas, you know, riding by myself in the Prospect Park, you know, cyclists that came up to me were diverse cyclists from Major Taylor's club. I would say that the diversity in, you know, Major Taylor Iron Riders, um, the, one of the reasons we're able to foster that is because we are welcoming to anybody and everybody to join the club and reaching out to them. Um, and I know Patrick has more stories of uh, maybe like more explicit, um, like not just implicit bias or just, you know, it's more explicit stories of discrimination when he's been cycling as well that we, we can all attest to. My name is Patrick Morozier. I started Major Taylor about nine years ago, just riding a $100 bike one day in the park. Some guy came up to me random say, hey, do you want to ride with us? I didn't know who these guys were. I've never seen black cyclists before. Um, so I said, sure. Then as months and years gone by, I was actually accepted into a, 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 a huge club. I mean, riding with a bunch of black guys who were all parts of New York, New York State, from Long Island to Montauk to Westchester. I learned to um, get more of a sense of a family with the club. But one of the key things about the club, it wasn't just a bunch of black guys. You know, it was it was Russian guys. It was Asian guys. It was they were white people. It was it was a very diverse club. Major Tail Development Team and Iron Riders have a section, a group of riders that travel to Europe every year. And for the past six years, there's a group of Major Taylor Iron Riders that went to Spain, that participated in races in, in, in France. And the reception that we got from all the Europeans were like, wow, you guys ride bikes. And it was sort of a, a shock factor for a lot of Europeans, mainly like the Germans, when we went to training camps in Mallorca, Spain, the Germans would look at us and they would stare at us because they've never seen black cyclists before. And it's very hard to like stay within yourself and understand why are you looking at me? Have you ever seen a cyclist? And one time our host who was, who was in charge of the training camp walked up to the Germans and said, What's the matter? And they honestly said, we've never seen black cyclists before. And, you know, we weren't angry. We weren't disgruntled. We understood. And it was, it was just something that we had to accept. 
you know? And then we have a race team that goes on to France and compete at the hot route for the past four years. People will look at, we were the only black team there, four black guys competing with 500 other people, all white. They were very welcoming, but we did get stares. So it is hard. And I think it's something that you have to, you have to um, learn to accept, understand that it's not common to see black cyclists. It's not common to see guys who come in, who look the same, who dress the same, who act very professional and who compete and who want to compete and perform. I want to keep shocking people. Like when I'm out there, I want to perform 100% because I'm not just a black cyclist. I'm not just a man. I am a person who loves the sport. So I will keep educating and keep trying to tell people, look, there's more of us out there. You know, we run the streets of Manhattan. We run the streets of Nyack, 9W. We try to control CRCA, Central Park and Prospect Park races. That's our goal. We don't consider ourselves just a club. We consider ourselves more of a performance club. Yes. So this is this is this is Daryl, and my 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 experience is not uh, too far from what Natasha and Patrick have described. Um, when I started riding ten years ago, um, at least road bikes, I started with a club that is predominantly white, and they are the um, a club out here in North Jersey. Um, and I didn't know that the Iron Riders existed. Um, and then I actually did a local ride, which was the Tour de Bronx, and a member of the Iron Riders saw me. And they, for lack of a better term, recruited me and said, hey, you should come ride with us. Um, and I went and rode with them. And the rest is kind of history. And now I race and I've been riding consistently. Um, but to your earlier point, um, when you opened up the call about what is, what are the Iron Riders doing that is working? And what are we doing um, that is helping the club excel? Um, I think the theme has been throughout all the responses is that there's a cultivation of love for the sport, performance, cycling, those like access to those types of resources. I mean, we have people in the club who have been riding 30, 40 years, racing for 30 years. I mean, that is a wealth of experience that I never knew even existed in the black community. Right. Um, I grew up riding BMX. I rode when I was younger, but I never saw people on road bikes that looked like me. Um, and then there I was at 40 years old, getting back into the sport and being introduced to a whole group of people who excelled at the sport. Right. Who were fans of the sport, who were passionate about the sport. Um, so that was very enlightening for me. And that was my transition from not just cycling, but cycling where I felt comfortable, where I had access to resources, where I had people who tried to cultivate me into a better cyclist. Um, to Natasha's point, where I felt comfortable, right? And it wasn't because it was a black club, because the club is very diverse. I mean, we've got people in the club who are white, who have given me tips and taken me on rides and given me routes. And it's just, they were accepting and they cultivated a better cycling experience. And I can't say that that is a theme that we see across many clubs um, locally and to Patrick's point abroad as well. Yeah. Um, all right. My name is Chris Haswell. My experience is a little bit different than that. Um, it kind of, it, it 
more on the lines of uh, local authorities. So I've been, you know, writing, I joined the club 2014, it's going on six years now. I started writing like this before I was a totally different athlete. I came from a whole different sport background, rugby, football. So joining the, this club, I just got a bicycle one day. I bought this bike called James from a friend at the, at the, at the gym. It was $150, whatever it was. It thing weighed about 50 pounds. I don't know how much it weighed. Like I said, they said there's a ride over in Jersey. So I rode over the bridge and I got <laughs> the Jersey. And I saw, and the funny thing, Tanya was leading this ride on 9 Delta. I saw this group go by me. Now I'm like, why is this group led by a woman and I can't keep up? I couldn't keep up. I was in a big gear and I struggled to keep up. But anyway, I rode and I got back to Strictly and I sat there till they returned. I said, I'm going to talk to these people because I got to figure out what's about. He's a competitive person I am. So anyway, I met Derek. Derek said, you should go ride with somebody in, in, in Long Island. These guys <laughs> almost killed me. But long story, the, my experience with uh, the, the racism side thing, to your point, Fred, about how to be, how white experiences we have with that. Um, there's a ride that we do all the time. Nine will be going to Paramount, probably, you know, Paramount to uh, Nyack and put to <laughs> the local routes, right? And it, I've noticed this happened uh, twice. To me, person twice, and then I've seen it another third time. So the cops there, I've seen white blacklists, everybody else who was not black go through, riding together, whatever, cops don't pull them over. We got pulled over twice to ask what, you know, you're riding, you're riding a tour bus, tour bus for like five seconds to get around a pothole and come back in line. We got pulled over and other people are doing it, but it never happened. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, some of the things that I heard um, from you and especially Natasha are reminiscent of some of the points that were brought to me by um, a number of African-American cyclists I've sp spoken to, which is that you get into the sport, you find yourself in a very white space. What can you say about the power, though, of being a cyclist and being in a like a space where there are African-Americans and Latinos and many different types of people of color? Like, how does that overcome the social gap that exists when you when you are an African-American and you go into an extremely white space? I would have to say, and you guys can comment on this, um, but my first thought is that representation matters. You know, I didn't, oh, I mean, I got a bike when I first moved to New York, and my brother says, you should, you know, get back to riding bikes and you live in the city. And I, I live near Prospect Park, so I did see black cyclists, but it blew my mind to see professional-looking cyclists, like with the kits and the fancy bike and the fancy wheel. And they weren't just Sunday riders out in the park, which is what I was only exposed to. And to see them performing at that level and that series, being that dedicated to the training, and of course going so fast, it was, it blew my mind. And my first thought was, how do I get there? But to see them representing, you know, my people, my community in a sport that, that is not necessarily available to kids in our neighborhood, it was mind blowing. And you guys may have a different response to that, but that's, that was my first, first thought to that. This is Daryl. I think what, what strikes me is like um, a good story about it is that, I mean, you're going to get our opinion about the local scene, but it's much bigger. Even though you're in a white space, there are some people who speak to you and there's some people who don't, but it still has the feel of a community, so to speak. I, I mean, that's probably not the word I want to use, but it can be somewhat communal, right? And that you're riding, they're riding, somebody sees you on the side of the road, they may or may not stop to help you, they'll say something. Um, but the bigger picture is that as a cyclist, I would travel and I would think that I'm a cyclist, they're a cyclist, you know, we can get past the color thing. 
I mean, nationally, there are major tailor chapters all over the place. Um, and that, that makes me excited, right? So I know that I can travel domestically, find a club and ride with people that will accept me for who I am and, and be comfortable in that club, even if I don't know those people. I don't know them personally. I mean, I know them through social media, but they'll be like, yeah, come out, ride. Yeah. And I'll feel just as comfortable if I was riding in New York, right? Um, I'm not so sure that that would be the case if I went out and just found a group of cyclists who were white and I was in Colorado. <laughs> I can't be certain that that would be the case or that I would feel that that was the case. At least, had, at least now, especially. I actually can, ex can expand on that because I have experienced that when I first took my bike and I'm born and raised in from Las Vegas, Nevada, right? So that's that's what I know. Those that that world, that city, that's what I know. And started cycling, took my bike back home, and I of course wanted to ride my bike, and I wanted to didn't know any groups. There was no bike clubs out there. I guess they have some now at the time. And I went to a bike shop. He says, "Yeah, you should come out and ride with us." When I got there that morning, that one person said good morning. Then invited me out to ride, and that was all. That was it. So did I ride? Yeah. Did I enjoy it? I mean, I was riding my bike at home. That was great. But will I go back? I did not. I did not. And I, I won't return uh, to that club. It was just like, hey, thanks for coming out. And it's like, all right, bye. So did they welcome me to come out to ride? Yeah, because I was just riding. It takes a little effort on that. But, mm. you know, to build a camaraderie, make a connection, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't there. Um, Patrick yeah. Morizzi speaking. Um, your question about when we enter a space where there's nothing but... Caucasian people or other people. Um, one of the things that I learned about myself throughout riding, when me and, a, and several other colleagues of mine would go to Spain, predominantly my, my, more so Mallorca, it's more of a, a, a resort for the Germans to come and do four weeks of cycling. And I, I did mention this before, we were always the only spectacle on the island and it was it's, it's hard to take and even after, you know the first few days you're, you're, you're shocked like what's going on what's going on but one thing i learned about major taylor and maybe both daryl and myself can can attest to this but major taylor iron riders club back in the days 20 years ago 18 years ago there was a a, a saying about the club and the club is known to eat their young and it's very true. The only way you can progress in the club is just to survive and come back and get eaten up back to back to back. Guys will take you out 50 miles in a, in a town to nowhere, beat you up, eat you up, laugh at you, make fun of you, and bring you back home. <laughs> and then you come back for more. And then you come back for more to a point where now you're returning the favor or you're helping the guys that used to beat you up, up the hill. That type of progression makes us more com competitive. So when we go abroad, we're not going there just to ride bikes. We're going there to try to eat other people up. And that's just the nature of the sport. No one just wants to ride the bikes and press their bells and with a basket and sing la di da. You go in there to ride your bike. I'm, I mean, I'm more of the extreme when it comes to sport. That's why I race. That's why I like going to Europe and torture myself. But
Major Taylor, the, just the club. It just you just don't want to be just a writer. You want to you want to hurt people in a nice way. Patrick, I think you bring up a really interesting point though, which is that having um, a personal dynamic like that with people who you trust, who you feel comfortable with, you can them have them take you out into the middle of nowhere and beat you up and then have you come back and you want to come back to the sport. Like if I just have to figure that if you were doing that in a setting where like you didn't feel comfortable around the people or like they're not, you know, like uh, Derek has said, they're not talking to you. Like, yeah, they take you on the ride, but they're not going to talk to you or you have nothing in common with them. Or like, you're just not creating the same amount of relationships. Like if that type of thing happens, you know, maybe you're not, maybe you're not coming back. I don't know. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like, you know, in that type of personal dynamic, something that's really important is feeling comfortable around the people who are going to eat you up and bring you in to eat other people up. I mean, all of us on this call have taken our respective beating from our first couple rides with, with the Iron Riders. All of us have taken them. But the thing is, is that I think, I, I know, I don't think I know for certain that even on that first ride, even though you took a beat down, you know, you were still, you had somebody on your side saying, you can still do this. You know, push the gears a little bit harder. You know, change your pedals. Stop, you know, bring, you know, take something to eat. Make sure you're drinking. They were coaching you along the way. So it was like a heavy dose of tough love. But you're welcome here. As long as you want to work, you're going to get better. And we'll see to that. You know, and I think that that is that, that welcome factor that Tosh and Daryl had mentioned. Um, that maybe a lot of others, uh, people of color, don't necessarily get when they go join other clubs that are predominantly white. And if they're not opening their doors, they're making an effort to welcome us into their club and giving us that camaraderie or, or that, oh, that open door, then we're, we're going to go seek out somebody else that, that does. And typically that lands us with, you know, it's, it's, it's a cultural thing just to, you know, stay with your, within your own. Yeah, you know, this is Chris again, Chris Haspel talking. Um, you know, all teams, all clubs, whatever sport it is, doesn't matter. We're talking about cycling here, so let me use cycling. Uh, it's all these clubs and all these sports. It's a microcosm of the bigger picture of society. This is all the people that live in society basically are in a club. So they bring all their biases, their, their hatreds, their, their hypocrisy to these clubs. And they and they, they stick with the people who have those similar thoughts or, or feelings. And so yeah, clubs get formed, whatever. I'm not going to name names, whatever clubs are in New York. It, it's the club I went to first started out before I even talked about Derek and then was New York Cycling Club. And uh, that was an amazing thing because it, I, I talked to one person I never talked to that same person again. It was always somebody else because when I go on these rides. And the ride leader would say, hey, you come to the ride or whatever, and he will take off. Speak to everybody else. I was in the back, didn't get spoken to too much. You don't feel comfortable. It's like, well, I'm here to learn too, whatever. Um, I, I think the clubs that are around, whether it be New York Cycling Club, CRCA, clubs that are predominantly white or white, uh, are, they are they suffer from the same thing that, that society suffers from with, with, with issues, whether it be racism and discrimination, all that stuff gets fostered, gets bottled up into one unit. And of course, you try to go in there and try to ride with them thinking that, hey, they're going to care about you or whatever. It's not going to happen. You know, it, it's hard to talk about topics like this because it's always get emotional. We get all tied up and tongue-tied. But uh, I think that um, Major Taylor, for example, our club is so diverse. We are here. We, actually, we don't even think of most of the people as white, black, whatever. It just Make us other people, you know, and you're riding with us. So let's go. I like to pack this point. We're going to eat you up and spit you out. You better be ready. I don't care how blue, yellow, pink you are. <laughs> it's going to happen. So I think that if that most clubs can 
think of things that way, it'd be a lot better off. The, the, the inclusivity will organically happen. But I don't think that's the case. I, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. It is not the case. So, and we stay with the clubs that we are in. And this is Daryl speaking. Um, I'm sure that everybody on this call, including you, Fred, probably know this, but the point of fact is that our namesake, Major Taylor, he rode through the same adversity. Right. So it's it's kind of how we're born, right? It's what we're about. It's riding through these adversities and helping each other through these things. Yeah, and I mean it's an amazing story. I suggest everyone um pick up there's a, been a couple of biographies on him or you know, there've been some documentaries too. I mean, first African American world world cycling champion, but just the talk about uh in your face racism that he had to deal with. People trying to injure him, crash him. I think someone at some point tried to choke him during a race. I mean, like his story is a very powerful story of someone facing down the most in your face type of racism and competition and still coming back. And, um, you know, I, I just have to think that just his story alone, yeah. like. It says a lot. I mean, I think anyone who's ever been through adverse times in their life can recognize the underdog. You know, and if they relate to that and what and, and what he went through and how it correlates with their life, you know, that, that could very well be a a drawing factor. You know, they, they learned first, they learned there was a, a you know, world cyclist that was black that won a world championship back in 1899. That alone is mind-blowing. I, you know, I, every club member has had to answer the question, who is Major Taylor? I've seen you guys club around who is Major Taylor. They've had to answer the question. Um, you know, it's representation of, of who we are as a club, how we're representing Major Taylor in his name. You know, how we're representing our club in the New York City cycling community and abroad. You know, I think that's very important for all of us. You know, Daryl put up brought up a, an interesting point about Major Taylor himself, how he went through adversity. Um, speaking about the the USA cycling here in the U.S. alone, you know, you have great guys out there in California like Saunders in the past in the early two thousands and Bahati. You know. These guys broke through the mold. They came out doing these crit racing, single-handedly controlling the whole field. And there were their stories and um, write-ups about how other teams would try to purposely hurt them throughout these races, you know? And it's, it's interesting because when you read that about how other teams would try to crash Bahati or Saunders, how he would try to compete against the Europeans, and then find out half the team were on EPO just to beat Saunders. And here in the New York scene, you can't imagine something like that happening because the New York race scene is pretty diverse itself. It's, it's a mixture of all types of people from Hispanics, Blacks, Asians, and whites. So it's, it, it's hard to imagine something like that happening to, to, to someone trying to get to the top. But it's very easy to imagine when you're on the road and somebody would try to harm you. One of the key things about being in this club is we all try to protect each other. We all try to educate each other and try to inform each other how to act in the street when situations occur. For example, there are countless of times we could be in a town in Rockland County a tow truck or a, a truck will pass by and say some racial slurs. Um, one of the key things that we try to do is ignore it. There's nothing you can do, but it happens a lot. 
But what do we do? Nothing. But, you know, deep down inside, it hurts, you know, because you, 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 you say to yourself, I'm in America and you're saying that. Worst of all, I'm in New York City or I'm in New York State and this is actually happening. I mean, sometimes I'm just shocked when I hear things like that. But, you know, you, you, you see Major Taylor, all the stories that happened to him, Bahati, all the things that happened to him. Saunders, all the things that happened to him, to us as a club and a race team, when people yell slurish things to us, racial things to us, you know, you have to be the better person and just ignore it. And sometimes it's, it just takes a lot. Mm -hmm. How many times can you take the high road? It, it gets old, it gets tiresome. It's just, you know, someone's always going to continue to poke and jab and it's only so many times that you can take that before you respond and then that's when it turns into something even uglier and it's scary because during this time with george floyd some people are very diplomatic they can handle situations some people are very hot-headed and they probably handle situations a little different but i always try to imagine how i would respond to a situation and before I usually go to a ride, I always say to myself, okay, today I'm going to have a good day. Nothing's going to happen. Everyone around me is going to be safe, and we're all going to have a good day. But if there's an accident or a crash or someone yells a slurish thing to us or someone causes us an accident or a cop stops us for some random reason, you know, I, I, I want to pray that no one in my club or myself would say anything to harm anyone. And it's very hard to be diplomatic, I mean, I don't have the right word, but just control yourself because you never know what's gonna happen. I've had my hand, I had a cop put, up, put his hands on me in the past for not having a bell on my race bike. I was traveling to Rockley, Rockley Crit after work, trying to make it to the race, crossing the George Washington Bridge. There was a cop there doing something I have no idea. He asked me, where's my bell? I was shocked. I was like, why are you asking me where's my bell? And he goes, you should have a bell. Granted, I said a couple of words. I told him to go, <laughs> you know, go F off. I don't need this. And he put his hands on me. Luckily, there was a couple of racers going to the same race that I was going to, RBNY. You probably heard of them. They knew me and they said, Patrick, let's go. They were white. After we got to the bridge, after we went through the bridge, they came up to me and said, I'm sorry. I was going to say really quickly, this is Natasha, um, to Patrick's and Derricka's point about, you know, being poked, taking the higher road and things of that nature. And this may be a conversation outside of cycling. I don't think it's necessarily taking the higher road. It's your safety. It's like we as Black people in America cannot have outbursts. We cannot be angry. We can't do any of those things if, you know, if we want to be safe. You know, obviously, even last night, we can't even sleep in cars. We can't fall asleep in cars. We can't fall asleep in our homes. So it's not always about, you know, being diplomatic. It's just like, we have to be, we always have to defuse the situation because nobody else will take that responsibility. And when we end up dead, it will be, why didn't you just follow orders? Why, why did you tell him to go F himself? Why didn't you just do yeah. what you said? Or, you know, whatever number of excuses. And so as cyclists, and I've been in situations on bike rides where, 
you know, somebody has said a racial slur to somebody in the front of the group. And then when we got to the front, the, when we got to the light, the cyclist and the driver started getting into it. And I had to like tell the cyclist, like, we can't do this out here in middle of nowhere, New Jersey, because it's just us. And if the cops come or whatever, it's just us. And we know how America is and we just have to be safe. And so unfortunately, we do have to be calm. I mean, we're not calm, but we have to be calm if we want to make it home safely. Again, you heard me mention it at the top of the show. Today's episode is sponsored by Whoop, the fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. Is today going to be a big training day? or a legs up on the couch day. Whoop will tell you the app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Listeners get a great deal on Whoop. You can get 15% off by going to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter the code VELONEWS, all caps, VELONEWS, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, optimize your performance with WHOOP today. Okay, let's get back to Rasan and Alan. And it's a very different experience from a white cycling experience. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been on rides with people where a cyclist I've been riding with has lost their composure and yelled at a driver, yelled at another cyclist, yelled at a cop, F-bombs, F-words. And, you know, looking through the lens of what you just said, Natasha, I mean, it's just it – is, it is a privilege to be able to do that and not worry about your safety. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a very different lived experience mm-hmm. for – It is. I mean, we've had drivers – I uh, remember a ride specifically was a mid-Atlantic ride, and we were riding some, and we specifically chose these routes because they were back roads, country roads, no traffic, little to no traffic. We designed three different routes for our riders to, to go on, and it was maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 of us pulling in the rear at one point trying to get to the finish line, and some guy in a truck rolled right up next to us. The roads were narrow, little to no shoulder, but there was no car coming in our opposite direction. But this guy laid in his horn, obnoxiously loud, and got dangerously close to all of us. And had it was only by the grace of God that all of us didn't respond, had decent bike handling skills, because it was a pretty quick riding group, and we didn't get run off into the ditch. You know, and he just got really, really close, blew his horn, yelled out something, and just flew past us, you know, and kicked up dirt or, or debris or whatever. But what can we do at that point? You know, we got to get home. Like, some of us have families. So it's just, you know, keep moving forward. But it's only so much of that moving forward that somebody can take before we snap. I want to to circle back on the topic of um, representation because this is something that came out of a conversation I had last week with Rasan Bahadi, which is, you know, those of us in the cycling media, we cover the sport a very traditional way, which is like, oh, the Tour de France is the pinnacle of the sport. The Olympics is the pinnacle of the sport. These European races is the pinnacle of the sport. So from covering American cycling, we're always trying to look for the Americans who are going to go over there and have success over there. And Rasan brought this up and he was like, look, you know, I know you guys mean well, but like that way of thinking about the sport, elevating European cycling in itself is, you know, that's, that's kind of implicit racism because there's no representation of African-Americans there. 
like there are Af- there's representation of African Americans in the U.S. crit scene, in the U.S. road scene. There's you know the Justin Williams and his brother. They're doing great stuff. There's Rasan. He's done great stuff. But like the way that the media and the cycling world has looked at their successes and who they are through the lens of you know the Tour de France in Europe is kind of like well it's not good enough you know and I guess I'm curious as you know African Americans who ride bikes and follow cycling. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that, on the representation or lack of representation in cycling media or at the very highest level of African-American riders? And um, does that impact how you follow the sport? Do you guys watch the Tour de France? Do you seek out? I follow the Colombians 100%. Egon yeah. Bernal, Naira Quintana, my heroes. I'm, yeah. I'm, that's because, and I, I'm, they're the indigenous, indigenous people in the sport. When Nairo Quintano is trying to beat up in Froome, I cheer him on 100%. Yep. It's, it's, it's good to, I mean, we don't have people of color in the Tour de France, but when I see the Colombians doing it, it is, it's, it's great because they probably have the worst history and they probably suffered the most discrimination in their own country in the past, yeah. in the history, to see them dominate and to have Egon Bernal win the Tour de France and at the end of the Tour de France, Naira Katana took all the Colombians, raised the Colombian flag as he was going through the, the um, Champs-Dolais. I mean, Champs, the champ, the arch. Champs-Dolais. Yes. That, to me, it was the best thing that can happen. It's like seeing a black man win the sport uh, of Tour de France. That's that's just equal. You know, I hear you, Patrick, and that's uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I hear you on that. You watch this. I'm a, I'm a fan of sport too, internationally. I've watched, you know, and it's funny because my one of my favorite writers is Chris Froome, actually, Ken Fabian Pancelaro is my other one. But uh, yeah, Froome has dominated for a number of years. He's won four four titles and he's trying to get his fifth. That's another story. Um, one of the first uh, black person to ever be in a Tour de France is a guy named Johan Jean. He's from uh, Guadeloupe, believe it or not. And that guy uh, worked 14 years trying to get there. Believe it or not, this black man worked 14 years training hard just to become. He was a member of Europe Car. Right? If you guys, you guys who follow the sport, remember that it's Europe Car, right? So he became. A, 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 he was the um, supporter of Volkler at the time. Volkler was the man. If you guys follow the sport, so and he did it for 2011, 2017. He was around. Europe Car changed to something else, obviously, but he was in the sport for that long. It went unknown almost no one even talked about it and it's funny because whatever reason why i brought it up is that while he was racing you could see him out there riding but the commentators never had anything to say it was like oh you know ug uh, johan is bleeding out it never did say it was the first or it's so great that this guy made it there there wasn't any type of um congratulatory tone as to say wow look at this I've never seen this before this is great maybe this can be a bigger bigger thing and i'm wondering uh, obviously, the, the, the commentators are cyclists themselves or former cyclists who have gone through the European white system, so they probably didn't know what to say. But I, I, that was starting that they didn't even have anything complimentary <laughs> during that time. I started watching the sport from 2000, so I've been watching this for a little while. But uh, yeah, Johan Jean, <laughs> one of the most unknown people. What happened? You're laughing, Derek. Why is that? Because you always have a history story, Chris, and I love it. <laughs> But you know your craft, and I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I'm a historian when it comes to that stuff, but, you know, with everything. But <laughs> it, it was a shame. And and um, and even now, I mean, you got the guy, Teklahara, which is from South Africa, who's in there, and he's brought some other uh, folks on over. He's, he, 
dimension data is with. And he's get a little bit of public pub to call it, but I don't there's no there's nothing from the European cycling tour, even you I mean for that matter, USA uh cycling that is promoting any type of either you know uh, programs or 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 some some kind of deals where they can have groups, black people or Latinos to come into the sport and be more and he, and obviously they can ride. It doesn't the skill is there. It's just gotta promote it. I mean Chris Froome being from Kenya, he has helped in that regard. A lot of money back in Kenya, sent some bicycles down there, got people training, so forth, so on. But to his credit, but US take cycling, for example, I mean in urban areas, there is no track cycling is probably the best thing for African Americans to, to get introduced into the sport. Because it's easier to get a track, a simple go track. But there's nobody trying to push that agenda. Yeah, quick racing is great, but there's nothing that's going on. I know it's a money thing. Everybody, you know, put some some effort, some some funds into helping other you know, youth cycling or 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 type of uh, you know women in the sport, black black women who are great at riding too. I mean, Natasha here is a racer trying to get down and get into the next level of cycling. Hey, Tosh, you know. So yeah, Aisha, Aisha McGowan is Aisha trying McGowan. to Yeah, I was going to say Aisha. Yep, she's been been good. So I, I think when we look at the, the broad scope of the the governing bodies of either European cycling or USA cycling, there's a really seriously lack of any any type of effort. I mean, now because it's either trending or it's 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 you know with this vile murder of this uh, three murders of these great people, it's it's become. It's more imperative. There's a push to it, and I'm hoping that this can grow into something else. And get you know, grassroots level cycling with, with young ones. Yes, you're not going to get a thousand people great, but out of a thousand people, that's right. You may get four all stars. This is this is Daryl speaking, and, I, and I'd have to throw a question on to the end of that. Is <clears throat> when you get to that point where there is that type of representation, and let's say out of that thousand, you get that four. Um, and they get on a team that could be predominantly white, will they feel comfortable? Will they feel welcomed? Can they excel? Like, those are the questions that, I mean, people aren't going to the Tour de France and excelling on their own. They're being supported. So that that's the question is, once you get somebody in the sport, is there a mechanism to support them to success? Yeah, is there space for them to grow? Is there support? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at, at that level of the sport where people are in and out of the top level, year in, year out, they're gone, someone else is ready to fill their spot and riders almost seem like they are interchangeable or, um, yeah, like there's a lot of these teams don't have the support or it's, it, there's, it's sort of just show up and you better, you better get the results or you're gone. And, um, you know, if you are, uncomfortable and if you are you can't find any friends or people you identify with and and you hear this just from even americans who go over to europe to race it's sort of like it happens real fast you're self-selected real quick if you you know learn how to race your bike is one thing but if you can't adapt or you don't have anybody supporting you mentally and emotionally like it can go bad i think be on a smaller level i mean you know chris made a really good point like you know to to get more people of color get more black people latinos Asians like into the sport, you know, what is USA Cycling doing? What is Trek doing? What is specializing? These people, these organizations have millions and millions and millions of dollars and they support those high end, you know, cycles, those people that are already well established and have been riding for 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years or whatever. 
but you know who's coming in behind them is more people that look like them. You know, how are they creating a feeder program into those underprivileged areas? Like, how are they reaching those kids that may not have it's even six, seven hundred dollars to buy a bike? You know, how are they developing? You know, other kids who have that talent, who have that potential of Josh Hartman, who have that potential of um, Patrick <laughs> or or even Malcolm. You know, to become like the next best thing. It's like if we don't find them or they don't have that one person is going to lean, you know, lean back and and bring them forward the way. Toussaint did for Josh, they're never going to get discovered. So, you know, if, you know, to, to a question, it's like, you know, all these companies and organizations are now, you know, saying, you know, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. That's great that you can hashtag it. That's great that you're going to put on your Twitter page, your Instagram page. But beyond that hashtag, beyond that post, what are you doing to push the needle forward? What are you doing to to change what you're doing? You acknowledge, like you said, you acknowledge that the sport is, is all white. You acknowledge the fact that when, you know, like, Patrick mentioned when you go over to Europe, you see a lot of white, like 95% white riders there. If you see that and you know it's an issue or you know that it's not a fair balance, what are you doing to change that? You know, what are they doing to change that? And I don't see that. I don't see them making the the moves to, to, to turn the dial on that. You know, you recognize the acknowledge it, but what are you doing to back it up? Hi, this is Patrick speaking. Um, I want to go back to the very first comment that you brought up, Fred. And you know, you, you've interviewed Josh Hartman, and just to, just to bring it back to his topic and his story, um, this the club Josh Hartman started with the Major Taylor Ironriders since he was what, 13 years old through um, one of the college, one of the persons on the team on the club. I think Tucson. I, I don't know his last name, um, but. As he grew up as, you know, from 13 to, to now, one of the key things that I just want to mention, and you probably already know this, but Josh has been nurtured by the club ever since he started riding. He's gone to club rides with these grown adults. He's raced with the Major Tail Development Team. He was actually the, the first member of the Major Tail Development Team. The team was developed around Josh Hartman to get him to the finish line. When he crashed, the team rallied, the club rallied to support Josh Hartman. When Josh decided to go away and come back and go to Colorado, the whole entire Brooklyn rallied and raised money to support his dream. And, you know, I'm pretty sure you know the whole story. You, you know everything about him, but one of the sad things that I see the difference between Josh Hartman and a white cyclist is due to this whole COVID-19 thing, a lot of a lot of athletes now, their dreams are kind of gone because they don't have the funds to bring him into 2021 Olympics. As with some other white athletes who have the funds, who have the nourishment, who have the family background, they can continue their dream. But a person like Josh Hartman, now he has to find ways Brooklyn, New York City have to find ways to get him money to continue his dream. So there's a racial problem there. You know, a guy, a young man with so much talent, he has to hustle to go on to 2021. He used all, the, I mean, I don't know if he did, but he had funds for 2020. Now he has to find another way for 2021. As with some other, some of, other of his, um, racers they probably don't have to worry about it they can just continue on to 2021 it's it's kind of 
I think it's a problem. And Patrick, you bring up a good point, which is the economic disparity too, and the economic side of cycling, which is that you know all of the big, a lot of the pro cyclists I know who have made it have those one or two or maybe even three years where like, yeah, you know, their mom and dad are having to support them or someone else is having to support them and kind of get them through that period in which they're struggling, but wanting to take the next step. And if you don't come from the economic background where you have that, it's just not going to happen for you. And, and you, you point out something too, that you did too, Derek, that I really want to drill into, which is, okay, you know, you're right. Like, all these institutions in cycling right now are putting out, hey, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter, and we realize this is a problem, and we want to do something to help. Um, what can the greater cycling world learn from Major Taylor Iron Riders? What can um, other clubs, brands learn from the success that your club has had in bringing people of color into well, that's cycling? A question. What's, that's a really good question, what's the game plan? I, this is this is Daryl speaking, and I, I I think it's a I think it's a good question, but I don't think the answer lies in what can they do for black cyclists. I think it's what can they do for cycling, right? It's about being open and diverse, right? No one's asking anyone else to promote black cycling only, right? We're just saying that we want to have the same access and and diversity in these other clubs and with these other resources and with these other brands and with these other sponsors as everyone else has and i think that when you look at bahati and you look at justin williams and you look at some of the other kind of domestic pros they're performing at that level and they're proving that we can right and i think justin williams is a great story right pulled off started his own team showed that he can do it and he's performing he's winning Right. So no one's asking for a handout. They're asking for access and to level the playing field. And I don't think that has to be an all black thing. Um, it just has to have equal access and equal opportunity. Yeah, that's, I hear you there. I, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's, you know, there's always different sides to an onion, right? You peel it down, you keep, peel, keep peeling off, there's more layers to this. And that's, that's just one layer, I would think. That is absolutely correct. But there's other layers too. I mean, you know, as much as we are, are the, the, the governing body, the whoever that, that, that can create this personal access still comes down to the kids that in East New York who can't afford to buy, you know, you know, whatever, that they're not going to buy a $400 bike or a $200 bike, you know, whatever it is, it's just not, won't do it. The sport is not attractive to him enough. How can we open that kid's eyes or kids like him across the United States or whatever in urban areas uh, to the sport? You know, that's where, that's where my mindset is. What, um, can we, it, it, for example, having events in your neighborhood where cycling is concerned, um, having, have them do things that we can win a, win a bike or, or ride with whoever, a celebrity that, 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 that rides bike. These are just more, how should I say, more opening their eyes to the sport. And, and, and once that starts, I mean, the economic part can come later. I mean, you have people from, you know, all backgrounds and, 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 and jobs or whatever that can help you know, improve that kid's life through cycling, whether it be it's a commuter or you want to ride with us. How does Major Taylor Club fill that? You know, as 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 club members, we we all try to help. You know, kids around the neighborhoods who we see and and and, and people around who you know who are, need to be in better shape, be fitter, women who needs to get uh, stronger, faster. 
we do provide that. Our diversity is probably our biggest asset. Um, you know, and, and Fred was, uh, Fred, you're still there? Yeah, what that question you asked, could you ask the second part of it? Because you, you asked the, the opening act and the second part of it was, was there. Yeah, I guess the second part of it, because now it's escaped me too. Sorry, I, I have bike ride brain as well. Um, I rode my bike today and thoughts are in there one moment and flying away the next. But uh, it was basically like, what, 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 can, what can they learn from you guys? I mean, you have this club where um, some of the stresses that people of color feel when they're in an all-white space, they don't feel that with your club. You have a club where you raise money for young people who have show talent and you embrace them and you, you stay with them, you know, like even if the person kind of moves on from the club but has a problem, you know, like you still continue to support that person. You know, we talked about representation. I, I guess when I think about the club and the success that it's had, it's like not necessarily what's your game plan, but like what um, what can the wider world learn from the things that you guys do on a day-to-day basis that, you know, is bringing cycling to more and more African-American riders? Um, I don't necessarily know that it correlates to what we're doing, but it does answer the question, right? And this is no different from a lot of spaces in corporate America, is that if their governing bodies and their marketing departments don't look diverse, then you're not going to get diverse output. Bottom line. Like they, those people who are sitting in that room and making those decisions and choosing where their ads go up and choosing where they promote and sell their bikes and how they price them, they don't know anything about the black community, then it's likely that you won't see a change in that area. So you need representation in those areas. And I'm not saying that they have to go out and hire mm-hmm. diversity, which they should, um, but they could use diversity consultants, right? Who's to stop them from sponsoring a club like ours so that they can get access, opinions, feedback, and understand the community a little better. Um, but I've not seen that done. Um, I know there are some brands that um, have either sponsored like Justin Williams and they've sponsored Bahati, and I don't know what those relationships are about, um, but I can speak for this side of the planet. I don't see that. Go ahead, Tasha. This is Natasha, and I, I agree with Daryl. I, I was kind of... Um not confused by the question, but maybe a little confused because I don't think what we're doing is anything that has to be specific to cycling. It's just specific to being a person who cares about, um, you know, speaking out against anti-Blackness and racism and just, you know, being a good and inclusive person. And so like, for example, and I think this may also touch to Daryl's point too, about like these institutions or these bigger cycling communities and like, what are they doing within their own institution? And so I have an example of, um, I was riding from Brooklyn to 9W and I got a flat and I was excited because I got the flat right in front of a major bike store. And I was like, great, perfect place to get a flat. Um, I changed the flat myself and I went in to just uh, top off the air in my tire and they like turned me away. And they were like, you know, unless you buy something, you can't use our pump. And I was just like, wait, what? Is this like a bike store or not? Nah? Um, and so they turned me away and I like went somewhere else to top off my bike. And I told one of my cycling friends who was white and she was like outraged. She was like, this is outrageous. She emailed the manager of the bike store and then she checked with me and you know, I was going to leave it alone. Right. Cause I'm, I'm black in America. I know what it is. It's fine. You know, it happens. Uh, not fine, but it happens. And so when I didn't hear back two days from the manager, she emailed the manager again. Like this is like, she was incredulous that I had been turned away from a bike store and that they were not going to assist me. And so it's like, 
you know, this email went to the manager, like, what is this manager doing to address this issue? Like, why was a cyclist turned away from a bike store because looking for air for her tire? Like something so minor. And like, what are these bigger institutions doing um, with their employees, with their staff to make sure that they're inclusive and just being good people? We're not like Daryl said, we're not asking for anything extra. Just, you know, don't be racist and be inclusive. Yeah. Uh, I got I got a comment. I like I like that statement, Natasha. Don't be racist. <laughs> I got a comment. Um, this may be a little too extreme from my colleagues. Patrick Morosier. Yes, this is Patrick Morosier. Thank you, Chris. Um, so everyone has I respect everyone's opinion and, and, and what they said. However, you know, your, your question is how can we reach out to people, especially young people? and have people want to, to, to learn about cycling and, and get involved. My point of view is we make it very attractive. I'm not the fastest person. I'm not the strongest person. I, pray, I probably can't climb the hill as fast as so-and-so. I can't sprint 500 watts for 100 meters. But I do love competition. I do love pushing the envelope. So the way I see it is, I want to always look good, feel good, and talk a lot of mess to make it attractive to those young kids out there who just think cycling is just for boring people. Cycling is not for boring people. Cycling is to make people hurt. I want those kids to say, I want to be like that guy because he was beating up everybody else. The thing with cycling is it's just you and the bike and the other person on the road. With basketball, soccer, baseball, football, tennis, you it's it's you see the competition. But with cycling, unless the kid, the 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old is gonna go out at 6 a.m. to Prospect Park to watch a race, he's never gonna really understand what, what it's really like to compete. So, yes, it's good to reach out and teach, educate, and, and do all these nice things with cycling, but you have to let these inner city kids know how cycling is intense, it's dangerous, it's fun. It's just like skateboarding and doing flips in the air or taking your BMX bike and doing wheelies up in the air. Cycling can be all of that. So my perspective is we need to make it look dangerous. We need to make it look exciting. We have to all look good. The nicest kits, the nicest bikes. I want the kids to say, I want to be like that guy because he looks mean. That's just me. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> I. To, uh, press, I don't need to go with that. But anyway, um, the, to your point about what is Major Taylor doing that's been so successful for our club in terms of inclusivity, I think it, we don't do anything special in terms of that. We're just, at the, to, to, to Natasha's point, it's just good people. You know, we're, we're here for this, the actual sport. It doesn't matter if you're from, you know, where, where's Batar from? I don't know, uh, we, wherever. To, to guys from China, Linus from wherever, Tokyo, anybody. Taiwan. Can, uh, Taiwan, sorry. They can, as long as you're able to work hard and, 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 lo and you love the sport, you're included. Doesn't matter. We are predominantly a black club because we're trying to promote and, 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 and honor Major Taylor himself, but we're, it's an inclusive space. And I think the word inclusive is used a lot these days. And I think it's like anything else, it gets overused. But a lot of these other clubs aren't. And I, and I think it's because just they don't, they never had to. There's no reason for them to be inclusive because they were out of the majority and they think that, they think a certain way. It, it, and it's almost, 
it, it's hard to say it's their, it's not their fault, but it it, it is because you you should, you should learn. You should as a society as you get older, you should learn and, and, and be able to deal with all walks of people. But some people are comfortable dealing with their own kind. Period. No matter what, they've always dealt that way, and it's just you know exclusive exclusiveness is not part of their DNA, and it's 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 hard to change that mindset. But I think it begins to change. And as far as the Minnesota Club, what we're doing, that's probably the main thing. You know, we're to nurture, grow, exclusive, I mean, be, be inclusive, sorry. Yes, you're right, Chris. However, you also want to attract people into the sport. You also want to make it seem as if this is an ex exciting thing. I mean, the average Joe is never going to wake up at 6 or 4 a.m. just to go watch a race in Prospect Park. No one's going to know how intense the, the sport is. No one's going to know how dangerous the sport is. I mean, you know, how many kids go out and, and, and get to see crashes? Not glorifying it, but it's, it is what it is. How many people get to see how close, you know, one inch from another person? Just, just the grit of the sport. If, I, if more I, kids were to see that intensity, they may just want to be part of that. That's what we need to do is... When you ride with us, this is how we're going to ride. We're going to ride hard, but you're going to feel good at the end. I, I understand what you're saying, Patrick. I'm just trying to, 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 to stay on point with the actual question you asked about what is it that Mita Taylor is doing that, it, you know, that, the, that the people of the, of the higher level, what, what, what are we doing that's so successful, right, in terms of exclusive? Yeah, having kids doing, doing what you're saying is great, and I agree with you, but I'm just trying to answer that, 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 that pointed question. That's all that was. This is Natasha, um, back to the, the question. I think maybe I touched on it in my, my first response as well about just, you know, when, when we see cyclists out on the road, we approach them and we say hello and we yeah. invite them to our club. I don't, Chris has brought in so many people. I don't know if they've stayed, but Chris has reached out <laughs> to people to invite them to join us on club rides. And then, so for like me, you know, somebody reached out to me, I joined the club ride, um, got my ass handed to me a couple of times. But then I stayed. And then later on, I got the speech from Patrick about, you know, you should come race with us. And so that's what happened. It doesn't happen. It doesn't have to happen all in the first meeting. You can come and you'll get the gentle touch of a group ride. And then you'll run into Patrick and Daryl and get a more rough touch of a race. Um, and so I think that's kind of how you do it. And so I think that my point is that's how Major Taylor does it well. We see people, we speak to you. We're not like a clique where nobody can come join us. We, if we see you and you have, and you're riding by yourself, we're like, come join us. And there's always somebody that will, you know, stay with you. We're going to make sure you make it home. You're not going to get dropped. Like, well, you may, you, you will, you, you are going to get dropped, but we'll wait for you. You will. <laughs> you will wait for you to talk. We'll wait for you at the turn. Somebody will make sure you're okay. I'm um, at all times. And so I think that's what we do. We're just good people. And we just invite people to join us because we want everybody to join us. It's a, it's a fun thing to do together. Oh, well, this is Derica. And I'll, I'll, I'll close this out. And I want to be mindful of, of everyone's time. It's 7.20. Um, and I want to, you know, be mindful of everyone's time. It's Sunday night. I know you guys want to get on with your evening. But, but Fred, I want to just, I want to chime in on, on, on your questions in terms of what Major Taylor is doing. Um, I think what we, what we are doing now is something that we've been doing since the club began. We stay steadfast and we keep it consistent. You know, we're not going to, there's nothing elaborate to add to the club. When I became president, I was terrified that like none of these guys who are seasoned as Daryl said who've been riding for 20 plus years not 30 are going to listen to someone that's been on their bike for maybe three or four years 
And when I asked my the, one of the founding members, Mel, uh, Mel Corbett, I was like, why do you think they're going to listen to me? He says, Derek, the, the season, the club basically runs itself. They just need to know what time and where to ride. And that still resonates with me. Like, they don't want anything fancy. They don't need any bells and whistles. I mean, that stuff is cool to have, but that's not what makes this club what it is. They just want to show up and have a good, solid, hard ride. So keep it consistent. Keep the grind. Keep the eating their young. Some of those elements from 20 years ago, it still keeps our name out there. It keeps our reputation consistent. It keeps the expectations high because we nece- we don't really have like a, we're going to bring you out and show you how to ride your bike. Like, you know, this is how you make a left turn. This is how you do a signal. You should already come up with a basic level of understanding. You know, we are labeled as and categorized as a high-performing, you know, uh, riding club. Uh, we're inclusive. And I know when I took this seat, my goal was to get more women to join this club, to feel more welcome to join this club. I think I've done a good job at that. I do take a personal hand in most of the women that join this club. And I think a lot of the guys, when they even meet other women that are out and about, I don't know, Daryl sent over a number of ladies, Patrick sent over a number of ladies. They say, hey, this girl, we saw her riding. We want you to reach out to her. And I make that connection with them because I want them to know you see us riding. But I also want you not to be intimidated when you see us riding. That you can do this too. And I make a very good point about any new riders that want to come ride with us. Like when you come, you're going to get your ass handed to you. But you're also going to have somebody to be with you the entire ride. As long as you're willing to learn to ride, you're going to get better. It won't get easier, but you will get better. And... um there was something else that I wanted to touch on. It, it's, you know, I think Chris had mentioned it, that some of the other clubs, you don't see the diversity in the clubs in the city. And I can, another experience that I have with that New York Cycle Club, you know, they are the, the bike marshals for the New York City Marathon. They've been doing it for years. You know, there's one point of contact that oversees all of the cyclists that do the bike escorts. And I was fortunate enough to get invited to come in several years ago. And when I got there, it was like I was completely major tailored from top to bottom. You couldn't, there was no doubt who I was riding with at all. And it made me incredibly proud to be able to ride through the city streets and to see all these people, you know, five boroughs, to see who I am and who I'm representing. And I could hear them in the earshot, major tailor, major gentleman. Wow, this is great. They know, you know, who I'm riding with. But then, you know, another year rolls by and I notice that there's zero diversity in all these bike escorts. They're all handpicked from the same club by the same person year after year. And when I called them on, you know, I had a lot of club members saying, Derek, can you, can you get me into the, I want to be an escort. It looks like a lot of fun. I want to participate. How do I volunteer? I want to donate my time. I want to be a part of the, what's happening. And there's people that want to do it, but again, there's no access. They don't know how to make that connection. And to be quite honest with you, the guy that does the picking and the choosing, if you're not recommended by someone or he doesn't know you personally, you're not going to get in. And he made that clear. I said, well, you have to be talking to the president of Major Taylor Ironbody. the predominantly black African-American cycle club is in New York City. I need you to change your tune. And I'm going to need to invite more of my people to get in there. Um, there's actually three black people that are escorts on that first ride that I went on. One from Jersey, myself, and someone from NYCC. And it completely caught him off guard that one that I asked him to do that. And I called him on it. But two, he just wasn't aware. He was always handpicking his friends that he happened to ride with year after year. And so every year I push the envelope even further. I say, hey, I have five more people. I have six more people. I have seven more people that want to come on board. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I, have, I know skilled people too. They're racers. They've been riding for 20 years. They have great bike handling skills. They can escort the wheelchair participants through five boroughs for 26.2 miles. They can do that. 
you know, but it's, it's just that his awareness and his response and email, the conversation we had that year, he's like, I just never thought about it. And I said, well, there lies the problem. You didn't think about it, but here I am in your face and we're going to make a change to this. Uh, I, I really appreciate that, Derek, that, that story, because it highlights, yeah, I mean, the whole thing we're talking about, which is that people haven't thought about it and people are thinking about it now. And our hope, my hope, sincere hope is that people continue to think about it and they listen to conversations like this and they learn from it and they read interviews with African-American cyclists and about their experiences and, you know, now having open minds to things that they didn't think about before change their um, day-to-day activities. And um, is it going to happen overnight? I, I don't know. That's, that's my sincere hope, that conversations like this can reach people who are feeling like they're in the same position as that gentleman you spoke about right now, which is that, oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. I didn't realize something that impacts millions of people in this country, yeah. and now I realize that, and 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 so what can I do differently? And I just, I, I just want to personally thank all of you for sharing your experiences and your perspectives and your thoughts with me about that because yeah. um, I, I think there's just a tremendous value in – um, getting your getting your perspectives and your experiences out there to a wider audience. Major Taylor Ironriders, look for them when you're in New York City. The club, uh, the kit is hard to miss. The club is diverse. Reach out if you want to go on a ride. How, Derica, how can uh, if riders, uh, if they want to go ride with the club and there's... Well, rider, the first you know, and easiest way is to go to our website, MajorTaylorIronriders.com, or they can email me at MajorTaylorIronriders at gmail.com. I check the email every single day. Well, great. Well, Derricka, Chris, Patrick. Tasha, Patrick's still on. Patrick, thank you. Your, your stories have been amazing. Again, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on the Bellamy's podcast. When I am in New York City next, I'm going to email Derricka and we'll go ride bikes together. For the Major Taylor Iron Riders Club, this is Fred Dreyer. Thanks again for tuning in to the Bellamy's podcast. And we will 